Let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 4. As we conclude today the final message on the nature and the purpose of the church, uh, I do want to focus to the all-important focus of the church, which is on the worship of God. But before we do, I want to really uh, get back to just, just a brief recap of what we have been through over the last three months as we have sought to understand the nature and the purpose of the church. We began by defining what the church is. The word church means called out ones. Called out ones. The church consists of those who have been called out of this world, which is in rebellion towards God. And those who God has called out of this world, who have turned from their sin and believe upon Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, those are the people that make up the church. Going to church does not make you part of the church. Amen? No, we are born into the church. You must be regenerated. And so the church is the redeemed people of God. And if you recall, we, see, we saw seven marks that identify the church in Ephesians chapter 1. And these are the marks that God has blessed us with as the redeemed, as the chosen, as those who have been called out of the world by God's grace. We are the blessed. We are the chosen. We have been predestined to adoption. We've been redeemed. We have been forgiven. We have been given the plan. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's the church. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And by the way, those are just seven. It keeps going on. This is all that Christ has done for us in Christ Jesus. All that our Father has done for us through the sacrifice of His Son. To sum up our identity, we are blessed. And now that we've been born again and we've been given this new identity Christ, we saw that we are born again actually into the family of God. You weren't born again, you know, it's just you and God. No, he brought you into his family, into the church of God, believe it or not, which is often called to as the body, uh, the body of Christ. That's a picture that the scriptures use to um, help us understand our relationship to one another and to God now that we have been born into God's family, into his eternal kingdom, the church. And so we focus on Jesus Christ being the head of the church, the head of his body. Jesus is in charge of his church. That's what it's supposed to be. You wouldn't think so quite often with us being in the church, amen? You know, you'd think if we're the body, then we've got a bunch of limbs flopping around everywhere. What's going on there? But that's the purpose of Jesus. The church is, is that we would be focused on the headship, the lordship, the direction of Jesus Christ. And it is through him that we have life, we have our being, we have direction, we're moving. We're empowered. And so the Lord Jesus would desire that we would all mature, that we would be unified, that we would grow up together, working together like a body to accomplish what he desires as a church. And so the Lord, to build up his church and to edify and encourage his church through the word of God and prayer and their various giftings, we looked at Ephesians 4, and that tells us that he gave the church gifted leaders 
And these were gifted men. And we saw how in the early church, the apostles and the prophets, they laid the foundation from the church. And then later on, we see how, uh, in addition to those things, the next ones were evangelists and pastor teachers given to the church. Why? Ephesians 4, 12 through 13 says why? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach the unity and faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ till we start moving together under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so God's given gifted leaders within the church to help edify, not to rule over, but to build up. And so God desires that His church become spiritually mature and equipped to fulfill, to fulfill God's will, Christ's will for you, for us. So among these gifted leaders, God has given spiritually gifted men called elders who govern and who tend to the local church. And their role is to feed the church spiritually and to tend the, the, to the church spiritually and to protect the church spiritually from false teaching. And so we have elders at our church. They are not the elders of another church. They're elders of this church, this local church. And we see that laid out in First Timothy and in Titus and other places that mention it. That God has put shepherds to shepherd us. Me too. I, even though I am an elder, I get shepherded. That we would grow up. We would be spurred on to good works. That we wouldn't be stagnant. That we'd be prayed for, loved, taught the word of God. That we would grow up. That hard things would be said to us. That when we're hurting, an arm would come around us. That we'd be lifted up and encouraged and helped. Amen? And the role is that spiritual feeding of the church through the word of God, but it's also that spiritual protection from false doctrine and, of course, false teachers. And those spiritual overseers are the elders of the church. But because these men are supposed to be focused on the spiritual oversight of the church, have you ever noticed that other things need to happen? It's not just sitting around opening the Bible and teaching all day long. Other things practically need to happen in order for the main thing to get done. Amen? Well, what is that? How does that get taken care of? Well, the Lord has raised up what we call servants in the church, and they're identified as deacons, gifted men and women who come along and support the ministry of the Word. How many of you parents, you know that you've got to do really important things in your house, like spend time with your kids, but there's just tons of other stuff going on and you're just constantly distracted and you find out that years later, you don't spend time with your kids because all these other things need to be done and someone else raised them. Anyone else? That's the picture. So we need deacons to come in and start taking care of those other things, not all of it, so that the importance of the word of God in your life that you'll be prayed for, taken care of, shepherd, will be accomplished. And that glorifies God because when we have the word of God in our heart, when we're tended to, and these other things are taken care of, we grow. We grow and we grow up 
and we become mature and we start to unify under Christ and we start to accomplish His will for us. See, it isn't just about getting you in a room. It's about growing you up in Christ, growing us up in Christ so that His will would be done. And so deacons help accomplish these things, very important. And so Lord Jesus has given this picture so far of the church, of a people called out of the world, saved by grace, blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, called into the family of God, called the church. We are led by the head of Jesus Christ. He is our head. And Jesus has appointed spiritual leaders, coaches, mothers and fathers, so to speak, within our church to help build us up in Christ so that we might grow up together to glorify God as we fulfill God's will for the church, the mission of the church, what we're actually supposed to be doing. We're not saved to sit. We're saved to serve. We're saved to be sent. We're saved to go. We're saved to love. And so the Lord Jesus, he calls us to this abiding relationship, to remain in him. And so as we do, as we abide in him, as we remain in him, as we stay obedient to him, as we remain in his love, we're not entering into the discipline of the Lord, even though that is the love of the Lord. We're listening to what he says. We're doing what he says. As we remain in his love, We just trust and obey as we do this, as we pray, as words in our heart, and we pray that it would come about in our lives and in the lives of those around us. As these things happen, the Holy Spirit accomplishes the mission of the church. And for the sake of our study, I simplified the mission of the church into three three, uh, directions. The inward ministry, the outward, and the upward. Inward, outward, upward. I think it's really simple to remember, although it's much more complex than that. (laughs) But the inward ministry of the church, Jesus said, is to love one another. Jesus saved you with a love that was for his enemies. (laughs) And if he loved us when we were so wretched and so far off, how should we now then that we have been saved, how should we treat one another? With contempt and impatience and short-suffering? long-suffering and patience. We should love one another, amen? And so Jesus said in John 15, 12, and this is the inward ministry, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And that's our model. How Jesus loved is how we are to love one another. This means that we're devoted to one another. The church, the priority of the church is to be focused on being with one another. Because we learned that you cannot love one another if you're not around the one another's. Amen? And so this is a priority of the church, and it's focused on being with one another, not forsaking, gathering together, but spurring and encouraging one another towards love and good works, as Hebrews 10, 24, 25 says, paraphrase there. And so we focused on the priority of fellowship, and in the context of the fellowship, our spiritual gifts. See, God has given you each spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, all these other chapters. But the whole context in which they're supposed to be used is 1 Corinthians 13, love. 
God's given you a gift, a spiritual gift from him to minister to the one another's. And some of us don't know what our spiritual gift is is because we're not around the one another's. When you're around the one another's and you're connected to the Lord, love is going to flow out. And how that flows out is going to be unique to each of you. And God is actually going to use your spiritual gifting in that way. And what happens as a result? The body is built up. So there's that inward ministry of the Spirit. And last week, we spoke of the outward mission of the church, to make disciples, to go and make disciples. This is the outward ministry of the church. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And we went into depth about what that means. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. We are to go and to baptize and to teach. We're to make disciples. It's not the great you know, suggestion. It is a command. As the head, he says, you are to love one another, and you're to go out there and preach my gospel and grab other people to come in here to go love them so that they will grow up and mature so that they go grab others to come in to love them. And do you see what I mean? Church is to be outward focused as well. And we can sit around here and love one another all the day and yet be disobedient to the Lord Jesus in the outward calling that he's called us to, to do. That's the danger of the church. People are so outward focused, they're not inward focused. They're so inward focused, they're not outward focused. Well, it's all. He wants both and. So we are to be a church. We are called to be a church that is outward focused, that loves one another and goes into the world and makes disciples. But there's a third purpose for the church, which brings us to our final message for the ch- on the church. And that is the upward calling of the church. And this is the high calling of the church, and it is to worship God. This is the reason that God sought you. You were saved to worship Him. God has justified us, He is sanctifying us, and He will glorify us all because He has called us to worship Him both now and forever. Now, as we focus on worship, we need to know what the Bible defines in worship. If I were to sit there and take a, a query about to everybody, hey, what is worship? I think we'd have like a lot of different definitions of worship. A lot of different definitions of worship. And so, I think it's important that we have God's definition of worship. If he's the one who designed it and and decides that this is what it is, it's not up to us to say, oh, this is what it is, and here, accept this. Right? Yes? Right. Otherwise, that's called false worship. He doesn't accept it. He wants true worship. We have to be true worshipers of God. And so we need to go to the Scriptures. Worship is expected by God. That's something we need to know right off the bat. We're commanded to worship by God. Now, I don't want to sit there and, and say, okay, now worship God. But it's a command, just as the others are love one another and also to uh, go into all the world, also to worship God. That is a command of God. Is it ex- it's expected out of his people. 
Jesus said it best in Matthew chapter 4.10 when he's rebuking Satan. And as Jesus is partially quoting from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.13, he says to Satan, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. We're to worship and serve God only. But what does that mean to worship God? There's a lot of thoughts about what worship is. And so we want to have an understanding of how God defines worship in his word. The word used most often in the New Testament for worship is the Greek word proskuneo. I know that helps you a lot. And as I mentioned last week, it means to kiss the hand in a token of reference. Uh, reverence. And, and, and we often think of it about a dog coming and licking its master's hand. There's just an adoration in their eyes and their heart. And we see this idea illustrated in different cultures. As I mentioned, in, in one culture, you have someone who kisses the hand of the king or the ring of the king as a sign of reverence and submission. And in, a, in an in Asian or an Eastern culture, in the Persian culture, in ancient Persian culture, they would get down on their hands and knees and put their hands, before, uh, hands on the floor. They would bow down and touch their heads to the ground. It's still common today in, in, in uh, religious practices. It's, it's showing reverence. It's, so, it's showing homage. It's paying uh, praise to someone who is greater than yourself. So a simple definition of worship is to give honor, reverence, respect, adoration, and glory to a superior being. To give glory and honor and respect and adoration to a superior being. That's what worship is. And this is the reason that man exists, to worship God, to give him the glory that he alone deserves. Now, in our minds we go, well, that's kind of egocentric. Yes, he is God. He created everything. He alone deserves worship. He is the center of everything. We are not. It is improper for us to receive worship. God receives worship. And it is the ultimate reason you have been redeemed that the church exists is to worship God. And to help us understand what God desires of us in worship, I'd like to focus on those verses I ask you to turn to. John chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. John chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. And these verses are really the definitive teaching on worship in the New Testament, I believe regarding what true worship is that God desires from us. And let me give you some background of the passage. Jesus is meeting the Samaritan woman at the well. In John chapter 4, Jesus is making his way through Samaria, which is in the region of Israel, and it is north of Jerusalem. So Judea and Jerusalem are here. And then up in the top is Galilee. Well, in between those two areas of Israel is Samaria, right there in the middle. And when the Lord and his disciples came to the village there, the disciples went to get food in the town, but Jesus hung back by a well. And a Samaritan woman came out to draw water, and Jesus engaged in a conversation with her, asking her for a drink of water. And then Jesus offers her living water, and she asks where she could get this living water because she doesn't want to keep coming back to the well. And it's at this point that Jesus asked her to go get her husband. And she says, you know, I, you know, I'm not married. She's like, that's right, you've been married five times, and the guy you're with now is not your husband. So he totally exposes her life of sinfulness. He totally exposes the inner workings of her heart. And then she says, I perceive you're a prophet, in verse 19. 
And we're going to be focusing on verse 20 where she says, she switches the subject and she starts talking about, she's like, can see that you're a prophet and then she wants to start talking religion. Verse 20, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. The mountain that she is referring to, she's a Samaritan, she does not worship in Jerusalem. The mountain that she's referred to is, is Mount Gerizim. In 722 B.C., 722 years before Christ, the, the, the northern kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Israel was divided into the north and the south. The northern kingdom of Israel became, uh, well, it, it was destroyed, it was taken over by the Assyrians because of their relentless idolatry. And much of the Old Testament prophecies were speaking to the northern summer, southern kingdoms. When you see the major and minor prophets, they're speaking to those kingdoms about repentance, the things that had gone wrong in those kingdoms, and that judgment was coming. So you've got a huge section there, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these types of people. Some of it's in, in actual captivity after these things happen. But, but what happened is that the northern kingdom got taken over first in 722 B.C., and the Assyrians came in and wiped them out. And what happened is they took the rich people back to their lands as captives, and they left the poor people there because they would be a tax upon their society. So they left them there. What happened is the Assyrians, because they had conquered the land, some of those people kind of stuck around and moved in, and along with their idolatrous ways, oh, the, the north was already in idolatry. And so those people actually the Jews who were left there and the Assyrians, they started to intermarry in this area north of Jerusalem, south of Galilee. And that was their section there. And they started to have kids and, and they became the Samaritans. And along with it, their false sense of worship, a, a hybrid of Judaism and false idolatry came together. And so they set up their, um, their, their system of worship there on Mount Gerizim in the north. And so the Samaritan woman who is speaking to the Lord, who was a Jew, by the way, Samaritans and Jews did not get along for this reason, is asking about who's got it right. You're a prophet. Hey, who, whose worship is correct? Is it contemporary worship? Is it traditional worship? Is it, you know, the big church or the small church? Is it, is it here or there? What's going on? Do I need to go to this church in order to do this? Or, you know, you know what I'm saying? The, the, the discussion started to happen. And notice Jesus started giving opinions, didn't he? Well, I like what you guys do here. However, I was thinking... Is, is that what he does? He cuts to the heart of what it's all about. Which is correct. And Jesus responds in verse 21, Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And I think Jesus is saying you because I think that the Lord convicted her and she is if not born again at this moment, will be. You will worship God, not in this mountain where I am right now, nor in Jerusalem. This woman up to this point had been focused on worship occurring at a location. She wanted to know which place was correct. 
Both the Samaritans and the Jews had their places. They worshiped. The Samaritans were on Gerizim and the Jews were in Jerusalem. And Jesus is about to say that those, those days are over. He is saying it. The worship that God de- desires is not confined to a location, church. The worship that God desires is not confined to a location. And this is not your get-out-of-church-free card. Because you've got to read the rest of the Bible. We just taught about the church. You're connected to a body, a local body. Stay put. Grow in the Lord for the edification. This is not, yes, we are part of the, the church, but this is where God has called you. Stay put. Be connected. Don't go out because how are we to shepherd you? How are we to grow you? All those types of things. Here. Is, does that sound like a shepherd? Yeah, I'm saying stay in the herd. Be careful. It's not the get out of free church card, right? But what is happening here is Jesus is saying that it's not about the location. It's not about Sunday morning. As if God's Spirit descends upon the physical building. It's not limited to this building, church. Jesus says the Father will be worshipped neither here nor there. Notice, and we're going to come back to this, who is worshipped? Who's worshipped? The Father. The Father is worshipped. Jesus is saying that the Father is worshipped. This is specific, by the way. He's talking about location, but he's also talking about the object of our worship. It's not about here or there. It's about a person. We don't worship a generic God. We don't worship the guy in the sky. We worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other God. He alone is God. And Jesus starts by clarifying who is worship, the Father. Worship is not to be focused on a location. It is to be focused on a person, God the Father. Immediately, you can see that worship can be well-meaning, well-intentioned, well-thought-out, have tons of ceremonies and all this type of stuff, ritual, be full-hearted and be totally false. Wow. Because it's not directed to the Father, to God. It's directed to a God, the God, or whatever it might be. And I can remember being young, and yes, having kind of a quasi-Christian background, but just having concepts of what God is and, and, and my understanding of, the, of this and, and just kind of being inclusive to everything and, and kind of, you know, I mean, just kind of like, yeah, you know, that's great as long as you, you, know, as long as you mean well. That's not what the scriptures teach. Immediately you can see that worship can be well-meaning but false and unacceptable to God if it's, not f- if it's focused on a location and not the person of God. How does Jesus say, what does he, Jesus say to her in verse 22? You Samaritans worship what you do not know. Ouch. Jesus is being truthful with her. You do not know what you worship. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus points out that her worship, their worship, was not based in the knowledge of the true God. It was a false worship. It isn't about getting together and fulfilling religious acts or ceremonies, church. 
with the best intentions. I mean, look at the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and all the orchestration and the glory. You can hear this. It's glorious if you've ever heard it. Utterly false. Detestable by God. And by the way, it doesn't stop there. What about us? Jesus points out that it was not based on knowledge of the truth. It isn't about getting together and fulfilling those religious acts. People all over the world do that. They ascribe worth to something greater than themselves. Every day, right now, all over the place. The Muslims worship Allah. The Hindus worship their favorite gods. Three million plus of them. Buddhists worship Buddha. Animists worship creation. Taoists worship the past. Shintoists worship their ancestors. And many who call themselves Christian worship statues of saints, even though they say they don't. And many Protestants, we go to a building, we sing our songs, we pray the prayers, we give our money, we listen to the teaching, but we never worship. Never even touch it. Never even enter into it. It doesn't even enter into our minds. It's scary. Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. They did not know the Father. Religious ceremonies, songs do not equal Worship, brothers and sisters, music does not equal worship. I want you to know that. It is a medium in which we express worship. Do we at Christ Community Fellowship know who we claim to worship? Or are we filling a seat, fulfilling a duty, singing a song, giving a check, whatever it might be? Do we truly know the Father? Jesus says the Samaritans didn't, but the Jews did because salvation was of the Jews. The Jews had the truth. They had the scriptures, salvation, that God's ability to save, it came through them. That salvation was actually standing right in front of the woman. This is what the whole Old Testament points to, the person of Jesus Christ. And he was standing in front of her. And all the Jew, though the Jews did have the truth, they denied the truth. As we know from the New Testament, the Jews had the scriptures and salvation was from them, but their worship was a reflection of their hearts and their hearts were focused on the external. It was all about the temple. It was all about the sacrifices. It was all these things. And Jesus stood in Jerusalem and he looked over the people and he wept because they missed him. The thing that it was all pointing to They rejected as a nation their salvation, Jesus. Their focus was on the location, the liturgy, and the temple, the sacrifices, the Sabbath, on keeping the laws and making sure they went to the church, checkbox. Their worship was external. The Samaritans and the Jews similarly had those, that external focus. They didn't know God, really. And here's the crux of the message, church, verses 23, 24. Jesus says, yet a time is coming. <coughs> Excuse me. Yet a time is coming. And has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Church, there is true worship and there is false worship. There are true worshipers, there are false worshipers, and we don't get to define what that is. 
God does. We don't get to define what is acceptable to him. We don't get to say, oh, I don't like to worship like that. I'm going to worship like this. Really? Let's find out what he thinks about it. Amen? That's important. You have to go by what the Lord says. And Jesus says that the true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. True worshipers know who the Father is, and they worship him according to that knowledge. They know who he is. They worship him in spirit and truth. It is important to know what Jesus means. Worship, is, worship that is acceptable to God must come from knowing him. And knowing him means that worship does not come from the external. It's not an outward in thing. It comes from the inside out. It comes from the heart out. And it's not something you can muster up. It comes out of a person being born again. The dead are raised to life. And when, the, and when the God comes and he makes us born again, we cry out, Abba. Worship comes forward out of, out of the mercy of God into our hearts. It is only the born again person that can truly worship God. It is relationship, not liturgy. The Jews and the Samaritans, they had relied on their location, their ceremonies, and their rituals as acceptable worship. And God has always rejected worship that is void of the Spirit. Do you know that? He's always rejected worship that is void of the Spirit. Let me read you a couple examples. King David knew this, and he lamented to God because of his great sin in Psalm 51, 16 through 17, where he said, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. Now, God commanded sacrifice. But David is sitting here saying, if you delighted in that, if I could just bring you something that died, if I could do that, I would do it. But you don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. And here he is, 17, my sacrifice, O God, or the sacrifices of God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite, a bruised heart you will not despise. God, David knew what was happening externally. He knew the sacrifices. But he's saying this doesn't do it. You want the sacrifices of my heart to come out to you. Here they are, a broken and a bruised heart. God, I've sinned against you. In Amos 5.21, the prophet on behalf of God cries out to the people, Listen to this. He says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like the never-failing stream. There was injustice in the land. They were taking advantage of widows and all these things that were going on in the church. I don't have time to get into them. God says, you come and you give me the sacrifice. It's all perfunctory. Where's justice? Where's the heart? Where's the action? Where's the spirit? 
Worship that is merely external is reprehensible to God, is unacceptable. No, Jesus says true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. And in verse 24, he says that we must worship in, worship in spirit and truth. And the end of verse 23 says in the ESV, and I'm just quoting from the ESV for a second here, it says, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Do you know that God saved you and sought you to worship him in that manner from the heart. God sought you out to enable you to worship him. Isn't that, like, amazing? And it is impossible to worship him in spirit of truth apart from the new birth, apart from being born again, apart from God's mercy on our life through the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we have received the mercy of God, we've been born again of the Spirit, and now our hearts cry out, Abba, we know you. We're connected. It's not without knowledge. It's not the guy in the sky. It's our Father. He sought you out. He paid the debt of your sin, of my sin, the death of his son paid for it so that we would be born again to worship him forever in spirit and truth. And that is why God sought you out and that is why he has called the church to go seek others out and he is still seeking the other church out so that they would come and worship him in spirit and in truth through the blood of Jesus Christ. <coughs> so the church would be those who are called out ones, those called out ones who worship God in spirit and truth from the inner being and in truth, according to the revealed truth about God, who God says he is in his word. Verse 24 says, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth. It has to be in truth about who God says he is. We're almost there. We don't worship a generic God. Again, the guy in the sky. No, we worship God, and He has a nature. It says that God is spirit. Jesus is clarifying worship of the Father for us. The Father is spirit. That is His essential nature. That's who God the Father is. (coughs) God the Father is spirit. What does that mean? not like us. In Acts 7, 48-50, Stephen speaking before he's murdered by the Jews. He's quoting Isaiah 66, 1-2, and said of God, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? As if God could be contained in a house. God can't be contained in a building. He is spirit. It's his nature. David's speaking of the omnipresence of God. In other words, he's everywhere at all times. This is not like us. I don't know about you, but I'm right here. I'm not in multiple places at once. Any of you? Some of you are right now, so you're somewhere else. (laughs) Trying to do that, but it ain't happening. (laughs) Got you back, didn't I? David says in Psalm 139, 7 through 12, Where can I go from your spirit? 
But where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be uh, a light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide you from me, <clears throat> or shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Heaven, hell, outer space, in the sky, in the depths of the sea, dark light. God is unfazed by these things like we are. He is, he's everywhere. What do you think everywhere means? He is. God is not bound by location. God is not bound by time. He's eternal. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Can you imagine being outside of time? Time is not something you're in, although you can be in it. It's any point in time. He is. Like he was there when you were born, he could still be there when you were born or here. I don't get it. He's just not limited by all this stuff. He is Outside of time, he is everlasting. He is eternal. In Paul's uh, first letter to Timothy, he cries out, Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory and forever. Amen. God is eternal. It means he is outside of time. He can't be, he can be any place at any time, at any point in time. He is eternal. He is immortal. He can't cease to exist. He is spirit, which means he is not visible to our flesh. And God sought us out, and He saved us and called us to His side in eternity to worship Him from our spirits, when? Everywhere, at all times, in all places. That's the location. Now, and in 50 minutes from now, and for all of your days, that is where you are to worship God, and when you are to worship God. That would be that God is to be worshipped in light of how he has revealed himself to us in Scripture. God is spirit, and you are to worship him in spirit. And if there's one word as we close in, in the Scriptures that describes most fully the truth of God's nature, of who he is, who the spirit is, it is that he is holy. He reveals himself as holy to, it, to us. He is unlike us in that He is and always has been and always will be holy, flawless, without error, without sin, without mistake, fully righteous, utterly holy. That is your God. He is unlike us. And I know we like to make God our buddy. And there's a sense in which we are a friend of God, yes. But He is totally other. Do not minimize the God of the universe down to your buddy. He is totally other. He is holy. And we now partake in His holiness through the blood of His Son. Praise God. But that has been His nature from all eternity past. And true worship comes 
when a person understands that the God of the universe is absolutely holy and that they are not. I think it really, that's where it starts, church. When God is absolutely holy and you're not, have you ever understood and encountered the holiness of God? I know that we are in a generation that just wants to sing about the love of God. I understand that. And I, and I like that. I, I sing about the love of God and, oh, Romans 8, what can separate us from the love of God? Deep, profound truths. Yes and amen. But he is also holy. Isaiah 6 has this perfect illustration of a man before the holiness of God. He has a vision, Isaiah 6, 1. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory, and that is their ministry day and night, throughout eternity, except for, I mean, 30 minutes. I think I read in Revelation. They just keep going. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook the temple. And it was filled with smoke, the Shekinah glory of God. And so here Isaiah is before God in his temple in heaven, in the throne room, in the seraphim, those angels who guard the holiness of God, they're crying out, holy, holy, holy before God. And the doorposts are shaking. Can you imagine this? And as you get into Revelation, as you get into the other things, you see the imagery and the glassy sea and the rainbows and the thunders and lightning and, and the millions upon millions of angels. And, and it just, it's, yes. And what does Isaiah say as he in the pre, is in the presence of the holiness of our God? He says, woe to me. I cried, I'm ruined. Woe means I'm cursed. I'm ruined means I'm disintegrating. I'm falling apart. Why? God's holiness revealed Isaiah's unholiness. The words he speaks, Isaiah speaks, are vile. And the people around him have vile mouths. And there was terror and there was fear and dread that filled Isaiah's heart before God. Why? Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You're wondering what produces worship is when we see who we are before who He is. When we enter into the presence of God, if we really are, we see Him as holy. And there is a godly fear, there's a godly fear that comes into our minds and hearts as we realize that He is holy and we are not. And this is why David said, if a bull or a calf would do it, I would give it to you. But the sacrifices of God are a broken, contrite spirit. He falls apart before God. I'm undone. He's poor in spirit. Right? That's what it means to be poor in spirit. You've got nothing. 
That is a response when a, God, when a person encounters God. You realize you're poor in spirit. David and Isaiah, they both realized on the spot that God, who is holy, had every right to enact judgment upon them. He had every right to just judge them and take them out. And here's where it comes, gets awesome. But he didn't. What's this? He cleansed them. Why? That is the cross, brothers and sisters. The mercy of God. The holiness of God in light of the unholiness of man and his willingness to cleanse us by sending his holy son to die in our place. What mercy. Peter calls it a great mercy. The great salvation. So to worship in spirit and truth is to have the inward part of our hearts, church, living in awareness of and responding both to the holiness and the grace and mercy of God. Living a life that reflects the reality of that, of who he is, is true and acceptable worship. Hebrews 12, 28 to 29 exhorts us, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably. How? With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Whoa. God is a consuming fire. Worship him acceptably with reverence and awe. Worship acceptably. How? With reverence and awe. The word is there for reverence is fear, to revere him, a holy fear. It is interesting that Jesus in Matthew 10, 4, which I quoted earlier when he is calling back, he's speaking to Satan. Jesus says to Satan, worship the Lord God and serve him only. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 13, 8, which says, fear the Lord God and serve him only. Interchangeable, worship and fear, a holy fear towards God. Fearing God and worshiping Him seem to be the same in Jesus' minds. Revering Him. So there is to be a reverence, a holy fear of our God in our worship in light of His holiness and His great upon us. Not in the sense that we lose our salvation, but that He is totally other. I'm concerned, church, that we're taking our cues about worship from I think a lot of it's from Christian music industry. Don't get your theology off Caleb. I mean, artistic expressions are beautiful, but are they truth? Is what they're saying true about the worship of God? And, and I have to tell you, I've been listening to Caleb and and, and all the other stations and all that stuff, and I love worship songs, but I tell you, it's 50-50. And half of it is just young people, well-intended, but have no clue what they're talking about. And I'm not saying that this isn't true about the hymns, too. The hymns have heresies in them, for those of us who love hymns. 
there are things that I read and sing, and I'm like, oh, man, it's so great. When you get into this one line, you're going, what did you do there? What happened there? Man, we're just not going to sing that verse. You ever had that go on, worship leaders? Anybody? <laughs> yeah, we kind of like cut that out, and we just go for the good stuff, right? You know, kissing God with a sloppy, wet kiss, what's that? Oh, but it's just artistic expression. Is that how? Is it the guitars? Is it the smoke, the lights, the stage? Is it the coolness of the pastor? Is that what God is after? In his holiness, let me tell you, he's got a light show for you. It's going to be awesome. There's a danger of paying more attention to how something sounds or how it makes us feel than to whether or not it is true. It's according to true. And we end up worshiping what we do not know. Or saying, God, here, accept this. And it is unacceptable. And even if they're saying what the Bible says, do they mean what the Bible says when they're saying it? I have to say, I'm listening to a lot less of it these days. Don't get your theology uh, from God about, from Caleb and, and from Positive Life Radio and all that stuff. But if God is seeking worshipers who must worship in spirit and truth, and notice there's a must, are we worshiping him in spirit and truth, church? Are you? Let me say, when a person encounters the holiness of God and comprehends the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, worship abounds. Worship abounds. Our lives become light of worship. It isn't confined to this building. Do you sing praises to Him other than Sunday mornings? Are His songs on your heart or His words on your lip? Is there, is there just praise and prayer offering from your life? Let me tell you, it's not just to start praying and in, in prayers, is something going on inside. There's something going on in there that doesn't produce it because that's where it comes from. The Abba Father relationship experience, the abiding. Out of that comes loving one another. Out of that comes evangelism. Out of that comes worship, the mission of the church. But let me say, when a person truly is connected to the vine and his love is in them and we abide in his love. There is worship in light of God's holiness and his mercy. There's worship, it comes out and our lives are marked by worship. 12, Romans 12, 1 is one of my favorite verses. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, that means God is holy. We deserve judgment. He sacrificed his son on our behalf. We have been forgiven in view of that mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasable to God. This is your true and proper worship. And the word here for worship is the other word for worship, which is service. And that's why some of your translations have service. Because you cannot disconnect worship from action. You serve God if you worship God. If you love me, you'll obey me. <laughs> right? It's all connected. So worship is not confined to this building, brothers and sisters. It is our life's response to the mercy. The church of God is a church that worships. God is everywhere. We go and we worship him in spirit and truth. 
Sing to him everywhere you go. Serve him every way you can. Give to him the worship that is due his name. And when it's all been said and done, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright and shining as the sun, we've known less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. When all that's there, in eternity, there will be worship. And you will not be bored in wanting to go have lunch. Me too. Because you'll have a body that fits your spirit. The wretched man will be separated from you and you will be given the body that fits. Made to worship. Until that day you reckon it dead. Let me close by reading Revelation chapter 5. I want to do Revelation chapter 5. This is a picture of the culmination of all worship in heaven and earth before the throne room of God. In the first several chapters, there's just worship that that totally, um, it cascades, and it cascades to this moment. In chapter 4, you have the worship of the Father. In chapter 4, you have worship of the Father. Now in chapter 5, let's read. It says, Then I, that would be John the Apostle, saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne, and there was writing on one side and on the outside of the scroll. And it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? But no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. And then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, he has won victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living creatures among the 24 elders. Remember those guys? And he had seven horns and seven eyes, which represents the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out to every part of the earth. And he stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings... And the 24 elders, they fell down before the Lamb, and each one had a harp, and they held golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people, and they sang a new song with these words, You are worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people, and nation, and you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for a God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked again, and I heard the voices of thousands of millions of angels around the throne, and the living beings, and the elders, and they sang in a mighty chorus, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power, and glory, and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and blessing, And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea. And so it's just this cascading. It's getting bigger. Everybody, what's happening? What are they saying? They sing blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the Lamb. 
You're going to be there. John saw it. You're in that crowd. In Christ Jesus, we're going to fall down and cast all the worship to God forever and ever, and it will be glorious. Start now. You've been redeemed for it. Let's pray. Lord God, I want to praise you and worship you and honor you, Lord, with our hearts now. You are holy. And we thank you for the blood of your Son, which now makes us holy. We partake in your nature. We are one with you by your great mercy. And so receive praise and glory and honor and may the songs from our, our, our lips be from our hearts. And as we go into the valley, God, may you be worshipped day and night when we're sleeping, when we're awake, when we're at work, and with our kids, our families. May you receive the worship that you deserve from our spirits and in the truth of who you are. And may the name of Jesus Christ be glorified. Amen.